Welcome to the War Room. Ryan here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you like this show, could you share it with a friend, family, coworker, whoever that you might think enjoys this podcast today? We'd really appreciate it. Kevin, welcome to the War Room. I'm happy to be here, Ryan. Okay, so your most recent book has a um, interesting title, but you've done a lot of research in this field, uh, The Dance of Innovation, Infrastructure, Social Oscillation, and the Evolution of Societies. That is a mouthful, especially for someone who can't read or speak well. Uh, but uh, let's unpack that title. What kind of got you into this field of study? And then we'll kind of launch from there. Yeah, okay. So let's start with what got me into this. Um, I realized in, uh, really in as, as an undergraduate, but I didn't quite have the chutzpah to uh, challenge my professors directly at that point, because I, I just assumed that they knew more than I did and that um, there was no reason to study history before about 1492. Uh, but it turns out that most all the social sciences and most all history courses that students take now in college start with European colonization of the Americas. And uh, from there, it's just a morality tale that Europeans brought patriarchy and oppression and slavery and you know yada, yada, yada. And, you know, being a curious guy, I had read um, a lot of history uh, that my, I wasn't being assigned. And I knew that there was plenty of uh, bloodshed and conquest and cruelty and oppression, et cetera, prior to 1492. In fact, I knew that human cities were around for at least 10,000 years. So I thought to myself, you know, this is odd. You know, why am I not learning anything about uh, anything that happened before 1492? So uh, I go to graduate school hoping for a broader picture, and I, I only find, you know, maybe one professor who will even talk to me about this. Nobody else really wants to get into it. I, I still don't really know why. Um, but I decided uh, now that I'm tenured and uh, have some time that I would uh, really dive into this research and figure out why do cultures change over deep history. And uh, there's a just a flourishing set of um, scholars that are doing this research, not most, interestingly, uh, most have this very modern focus. And it's really just an excuse to criticize capitalism and, and blame capitalism for all these things. And, and capitalism has many flaws, but it's just, just a lot of human history before capitalism. So, so I got into this uh, cultural evolution space and I was really intrigued. So I knew I had to write a book about this when I read uh, Steve Pinker's uh, fantastic handbook chapter called The False Allure of Group Selection. So it turns out that the among the, the set of people who try to seriously study cultural evolution over the long term, um, it turns out that they often will appeal to things like group norms or, or certain norms or traditions or religious practices that were particularly cooperation inducing, um, uh, were particularly uh, integrative of different people or motivating of innovation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and okay, maybe that's what pushed culture along or, or society along um, was these interesting norms and traditions. But as Steven Pinker pointed out, um, when we use the word evolution, we have to be very precise. We have to be specific because in biology, evolution uh, uh, addresses a very specific set of dynamics. Particularly, there's, there's information that is being selected differentially across generations. That's genetic information. And there is a thing that is changing over time. In this case, the bodies of animals. So it's very discrete and material. Uh, a gene, you can isolate where a gene begins and ends, even though genes act in networks, you can isolate specific uh, stretches of nucleic acid. 
And of course, the body is a very material thing uh, as it changes. But norms are not like that. They're not quite discrete. I mean, where does the norm to, um, um, let's say, uh, uh, be kind on Thanksgiving to your family, well, where does that begin and end in the way that a stretch of nucleic acid begins and ends? Uh, what is material exactly about a religious tradition? These things are rather subjective. They're somewhat ephemeral. Uh, they're not clearly definable. They're not very discreet. And so Pinker just absolutely devastates, in my opinion, an entire field of study with this critique, saying, look, we have to be um, attentive to, if we're going to talk about evolution in the cultural sense, we have to have a discrete and material entity that is being differentially selected and changing over time. And so I just got fascinated with that question. And I can give you what I came up with, my answer for that. Uh, but, but that's what got me into it. And that's kind of the crux of the, of the area. Yeah, I, I remember reading um, Harold Tanner. I believe he's got a two-part volume on the history of China. And he starts talking about all the stuff that China invented before the West. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that. That's fascinating. I think it was gunpowder, maybe the compass. Like, it's like four or five things that, they, that their society actually invented first. And I was like, huh, I, I didn't know that. I never, it's, it's, to, to your point, it's kind of a Western historical background that we have and so it, it gets interesting because when you start to trace back the, the, it's it's hard to understand the times that we're in right we all have thoughts about them um, but it's, it's it's quite quite complicated um how for instance what might be going on in russia ukraine ultimately will impact you and me right now today at least it has no impact on me that I can tell except for inflationary prices potentially but it, it's not really impacting me that doesn't mean that there's things that that, that that are happening today that ultimately six months or a year, if World War III breaks out, right, would happen. So it, it's very hard to understand what is going on in time. But then when you remove yourself from time and you look back, it's still quite hard to always understand how broad you go and how wide you go. And so it seems that maybe historians on some level um, feel that pain. That's why I'm, I'm big on encouraging you know, we have, you know, 700 books on World War II or Lincoln or whatever it is every year. It's like, well, that's good. We need more perspectives because it's really hard to pin down these large sweeping narratives and to determine where something starts and where something ends. And I, I, I mean, because you can't say, well, from 1901 to 1999, this is a segment of history. And it's for, it, that's not how I mean, someone was born in 1899 and someone lived past. So it's, it's constantly fluid. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, look, what, what happened between 1991 and 1992 it just is debatable. It depends on your perspective. It depends on, you know, what you're paying attention to. That's not the case when you're analyzing stretches of nucleic acid in genes. And this was Steven Pinker's point. It's like, look, we can all agree that there's a gene here, um, like a cistron is what the, the technical term would be. We can all agree that there's a thing here and we can measure it. That's a lot harder to do when you're measuring, you know, what really happened in the Gulf War, for example, let's say. Um, yeah, and you mentioned China. We got the printing press from China. It was brought over by Jesuits to Europe. I mean, like, you know, wow. Yeah, but. it's all, all that stuff. So now that we've acknowledged the task in front of you, it's not in front of me because I'm just a podcaster. The task in front of you is quite large. Sure. How do you go about trying to understand that you have to make progress, knowing that you're going to miss stuff because you can't include it all, um, but to push forward the narrative in this conversation. Okay, so I think I've solved this problem, Ryan. And okay. I, don't, I don't think that it's because I'm some great genius. I think it's because I have read 
all of the people at the at the top of the mountain in this field who I admire and respect, and I've just tried to integrate their ideas. And I think I've come up with something a little bit, just a slight little twist that solves all of these problems. Um, I haven't reached out to Steve Pinker yet to see what he thinks about my solution. I, I need to do that. I've just got a million other things going on. And I, granted, this isn't like, you know, I'm not curing cancer or anything. So it's not the end of the world if I'm right. <laughs> uh, but, but I think I've solved it. So here's what I think it is, Ryan. Let me first tell you why I think uh, other writers hadn't figured it out yet. One thing you learn about when you get into academia is that um, these are people who have lived uh, rather lavish and comfortable lives. Uh, Mm -hmm. Oftentimes they have professors who have PhDs born with a silver spoon, and I'm not trying to be, you know, that's fine and good. I have nothing wrong with that. But what I've noticed is that sometimes when people have a very... um, uh, 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 posh life and existence, they, it, it's harder for them to imagine that their day-to-day experience rests on very mundane structures that people have to maintain that they might not regard as brilliant. They might not regard them as geniuses. They might not mm. be in the halls of museums. And yet without these people, you'd be fucking dead right now. So, so I looked at infrastructure. And what really got me interested in infrastructure is first of all, there is a a clear set of information, just like we see in genetics, just like we see in genes. There's clear information, there's building principles, there's mathematical equations, uh, there's diagrams. Infrastructural engineering, construction engineering, particularly as it regards to infrastructure. Infrastructure, I just mean the, the, um, the pipes and the wires and the cords and the pulleys these mechanisms that are most proximate to energy extraction and um, dissemination in a society, energy extraction, energy processing, and energy dissemination. So whatever the structures are in a human society that are most proximate to that process, that's what I'm calling infrastructure. Um, so, so, you know, a school in my definition is not infrastructure, but the water pipes and the electrical lines and the electrical substations, et cetera, et cetera, and the undersea cables that, that provide the internet for that school, that, that is the infrastructure. The school is not, that's a kind of a, the school is a, is a, is a, is an epiphenomena of this underlying infrastructure that we. So, yeah, yeah. So let me make sure I follow So if you've seen that picture of night of the earth and you see all the lights lit up. Okay. So that's not exactly what you're saying. You're saying if you could turn those lights off and see all the things that help those lights come about, that would be what you're talking about. Yes. Okay. Whatever, whatever uh, structures are most proximate to energy extraction, processing, and distribution. And I know that's a little vague, but it, it kind of has to be because I'm talking about so many different structures. So in an ancient society, these could be irrigation canals. Because if you don't have water running through fields, um, y- y- you, you're going to have dead people and you're going to have a dying society. So the irrigation canal, the actual digging out of the irrigation canal and the maintenance of that, that is your core infrastructure in an in, in agricultural society. Today we have water pipes, but so yeah. Um, and and what I realize is that if we just think about infrastructure as providing more energy to societies, um, uh, keeping lights on, um, uh, providing more food, um, uh, better access to water, that these are the things that are most proximate to survival. And if we can increase energy capture in those things, people will live longer. They'll be healthier. Uh, they'll be able to think more freely and more lo- and longer throughout the day. Um, they'll be able to raise more kids. They'll be able to uh, uh, um, uh, transport those kids to different parts of their society via roads, which is another critical por- por- um, aspect of infrastructure. But but what, what what really gave me the insight is that this satisfies Pinker's uh, criteria for discreteness and materiality. 
So unlike a religious tradition or a norm or an ideology or whatever, um, a let's say a uh, an electrical substation, if we were to look at the, the blueprints for one of those in, in contemporary society, there's going to be specific diagrams and principles and mathematical equations associated with its construction that are very precise. And if those are not selected, if the best ways of constructing an electrical substation are not passed on generation to generation, and I don't mean the ideology around electricity or global warming, I'm talking about specifically the engineering principles. If those are not precisely copied each generation and modified to be more and more energy efficient, more and more accessible, then I'm not going to be able to access electricity or I won't be able to pay for it or I won't be able to have it long enough um, so that my kid can go to school when uh, or an after school program when it's dark out and continue to read and not have to do it by candlelight. Uh, so, so what I realized is that um, uh, infrastructure, the principles associated with its development are, are discrete. And of course the infrastructural units that are created are material in a way that, I mean, they're literally physical things in a way that ideas and, and religious traditions and norms, et cetera, are not. Um, and then it dawned on me that this maps on perfectly to biological evolution. So the, the unit of selection here that's being differentially uh, retained are these engineering principles. And we're improving on these every generation or our societies don't grow in size or become more sophisticated, um, uh, i.e. better adapted to their various um, challenges. And uh, the unit of evolution, what's changing, what's actually being modified are the infrastructures themselves. So the electrical substation will look different 25 years from now. Irrigation canals, in many ways, how we transport water looks different now than it did 25, 30, 40, 50, 100, 2,000 years ago. Um, so, so those are the things that are being actually modified. But what's being differentially reproduced are the engineering principles associated with their construction. So you have the information side, the engineering principles, the corollary being genetic information. And then you have the actual infrastructures that are being modified, the corollary being bodies, organisms. Okay, so I've said um, talking with friends before um, that that talking about society and that perhaps as we sit here in twenty twenty three, society could decay and fall apart. But there is kind of a as you move forward a base level that you can't go back down beyond because some of this stuff that you're talking about seems to be in uh, into the culture. So it would be almost impossible for us to go back to an agrarian society because we just know too much. Unless you were to have a, a catastrophic um, mass casualty event where you couldn't actually have enough workers and enough smart people and technicians and all the stuff you need. So you have this progression of these engineering models, however you want to phrase it, infrastructure models um, that are very precise and very accurate. But you also got to have a continuation of the population, though, to make sure that you have enough people to do the job is that would, right. So you got to you, you got to have the engineering part. I'm, I'm with you, but you also have to have a population that can can do these tasks. Yeah, yeah, the information has to be stored so that it can persist across generations and be improved. So the, the, the original place where these principles were stored were, of course, in the human brain. Now we store them on hard drives. Uh, in the intermediate, they were stored in, you know, written on various parchments and so on. Right. So, so we've been storing them in increasingly efficient ways, in increasingly accessible ways. Uh, yeah, so that they can be modified every generation. Um, and, uh, and yeah, you have to have people do the job. You have to have people actually building these things. And in the ancient world, um, if you weren't an indentured slave or a servant of some kind, um, and you weren't lucky enough to have your own farm, 
uh, you pretty much um, worked for the local representative mm -hmm. of the leader or king, and they had you build things. They had you be digging trenches, digging uh, agricultural, um, various agricultural uh, um, uh, 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 you know means of transporting energy, moving big, huge stones across the landscape, et cetera. What's interesting about that is that now, relative as a proportion of the labor force, many people are in service work and relatively few people as a proportion of the population are involved in constructional engineering. So this insight that what's actually pushing us along aren't the intellectuals and the politicians mm -hmm. and the, no, no, no. What's pushing us along are the engineers and the builders. And it's just that as a proportion of the labor force, they've become smaller. Uh, we have many more occupations now than we did in, let's say, ancient Egypt or ancient Rome. And so it's becoming more and more invisible to us that that all of this wonderful edifice of society is predicated on these these engineering principles and these people who are building this stuff. Yeah, it's funny because today I was uh, dropping off some stuff at the local scrap metal yard in town. And I called a buddy up. I said, hey, how do these things like he's got some land he's looking to develop? I was like, have you ever looked at one of these? I don't know how I don't know how, I know how it works. I know I'd go take my stuff and they give me money. I don't know what they do with it. I don't really take it. I don't know anything about this, but you have land. Have you ever considered this? And he goes, no, I haven't. And it's just kind of funny because here's a business in town. I have no idea other than you take scrap metal. They unload it. They do something with it. Somehow they're making money. They're paying me for it. It's a very weird thing. And it's not exactly a one-to-one -one what you're talking about, but it is in that same mentality, which is um, there's so much. And, and you, you think about the economy and how just diverse it is today. Um, it is quite hard for any of us to really get a grasp of how this thing works because there's all these little parts that just kind of make it tick along. And to your point, you know, 7,000, 6,000, 5,000, whatever so you say, you know, 400 years ago. It, it wasn't It wasn't that way. It was a lot more simple. But with that being said, the tasks that we have, are they more skilled, less skilled, or is the skill level the same? Because we're doing things that appear to be more skilled, but working in the energy industry, I've seen, you know, pipelines be constructed, stuff like that. And, and you will have a guy who will weld the pipe. Now, that's a, I can't weld on pipe. So, but it's a very but it's, it's a small task relative to the whole pipeline being built. Um, so we've kind of comp compartmentalized things. It seems. Yeah, yeah, I, I that that's definitely true. There's a there's a much more complex division of labor now that uh, infrastructure has become more uh, complex. Um, yeah, I agree with you about that. Um, uh, but what's interesting is it's the pipe that's evolving. Even roads. I this blew me away. Like. Uh, roads have been evolving in such complicated ways. Um, we add so many things to modern roads now. Uh, so it's these things are evolving. What, what are evolving? Uh, we're not evolving. I mean, evolutionary biology, humans, human beings are evolving as a species. But, but in cultural evolution, it's these infrastructures that are evolving, I think. Um, they're changing over time. And we're now kind of, they're domesticating us. Because if we don't have adequate uh, education around engineering, around STEM fields. Um, if, if we don't precisely reproduce engineering principles and build on them, uh, then our societies will not become more complex and our economies will not grow. And that's that. It doesn't matter how good our ideologies are, how moral we are, whatever the hell else we care about. If that stuff doesn't become more efficient and better disseminated um, to more people, uh, our society will not become more complex. So, what separates then um, countries who have 
become more complex, more more integrated, more um, newer technologies versus countries who have it? Yeah, it it seems to be. I mean, that's a really good question. And I think when the way I look at this, and I'm still trying to figure this out, you know, there, there are answers like Jared Diamond has this argument about, um, you know, how the West was able to develop certain, uh, let's say, uh, um, immunological protections, they domesticated animals earlier. And so they had, um, uh, they were their immune systems were more robust to the sort of pathogens that that Native Americans were susceptible to. So he's got this idea about how the West was able to expand. You know, I don't, for me, I'm not 100% sure what's going on there. Uh, But the way I I tend to look at it is that um, uh, these systems tend to expand outward very broadly. So I don't think societies evolve in isolation. I don't think American infrastructure is evolving and Chinese infrastructure is evolving. I think just like in evolutionary biology, it's the population of species that's evolving. It's that, you know, you, Ryan, are not evolving right now. Me, Kevin, are not evolving. It's human species as a population. There's a differential reproduction of genes. So I think the corollary here is I think human societies are evolving. So so I think, you know, what, what's happening is that the infrastructure in India, let's say, and the infrastructure in America may be different, but but there's a constant interplay between these two societies. And there's a constant sharing of engineering principles. And I don't think there's an engineer in India who takes their job seriously that isn't interested in the engineering dynamics that are happening in in the United States. So it becomes hard to really segment off uh, the evolution of infrastructure happening in society A, but that's not happening in society B. They're they're constantly co-occurring. Now, but it's still an interesting question. You know, why do we get infrastructural variation between societies? And, you know, I'm just not sure about that yet. I, I'm, I'm trying to figure that out. I, I don't know. I'm okay. not sure. So um, I, I want to ask you some some reasons why you don't think these might not be it, but I want to touch on something you said there, which is right now, there's a big push against the idea of globalization. And to me, um, we can unpack the corruption involved with globalization if we want, but it is ludicrous on face value to to say, well, we're against some sort of international trade or we're working for it. We use that term globalization very loosely. Um, but to your point, why would we not, um, you know, if, if Russia had some cancer-saving medicine, why would we not want to go talk to them and buy it? Like, what? only a fool would say, well, globalization. And so I know there's, there's, de- there's definitely problems with the system. But to your point, that is a critical thing that we have to realize that if another society has something better than we have, we shouldn't invoke war to go take it from them, but we should try to trade with them. We should try to work with them to get it because their society has passed us in this area. And there's something that we can either learn from them. We can buy it from them. Um, and so kind of, it feels like there's a weird vibe around globalization and it's going away, which I think is hogwash. But to your point, especially now, you know, me and you are actually located pretty close to each other compared to most people I podcast with, yeah. but I podcast with people all over the world. I couldn't have done that. <laughs> so our society benefits from me talking to someone way on the other side of the world or way on the other side of the country. And we've kind of, we've kind of become flippant about that. And that's, to me, that's kind of a, a very sad thing. And I'll, I, I mean, I, there's a episode, I think around 50, we had someone come on, come on, talk about the war um, in Cameroon and what's going on there and the, the atrocities. It's, it's like, man, you know, in the 1950s, probably never would have known about this, but now we can raise awareness. We can talk about it. We have discussion. Maybe we can get something done. Maybe not. But we can at least push the ball down the road. Um, and so I think it's. I think it kind of gets left. It can take it for granted. Maybe that 
that we're in a very, very special time in human history, and we should take advantage of that. Yeah, and, and part of the reason why it's hard to see is because humans are so focused on their own subjectivities. They're so focused on their own ideas and their own beliefs, but that's not relevant to anything, really. I mean, if, if you focus on what's relevant to survival, very proximate things to survival, they spread very rapidly all around the world, and they're actually very similar all around the world. So Jeffrey West makes this case in a book called Scale, which I highly recommend. But he, he says, look, if you look at terminal units of infrastructure, so a terminal unit of infrastructure is the aspect of the infrastructure that's closest to your using of it as a human. So things like electrical outlets, not the electrical wiring in your walls, not the substation, but the actual outlet. Electrical outlets look strikingly similar all around the world because mm-hmm. there's, a, there's, a, there's a limited design space for making a very um, efficient outlet for electricity. Um, even things like electrical wires, even though they're not quite as proximate to our specific access of the electricity, electrical wires look remarkably similar all around the world. Um, uh, uh, something like undersea cables to, 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 um, uh, to create a, an Internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are going to be, there's only so many ways to put a cable at the bottom of the ocean so that it can transmit electricity. There's only so many ways to do this well. And so much of our economy depends on it that people aren't going to play around with it. You're not going to have like a, an Indian design for undersea cables and a Chinese design for undersea cables and an Iranian design. No, you're just going to have a, there might be some slight differences, but there are going to be more similarities than differences. And it's just fascinating once you realize that ideologies vary wildly, religions vary wildly, and all this stuff varies quite wildly. But look at electrical outlets, society to society, they're strikingly similar. And I was in Norway recently, um, and uh, their electrical outlets do look a little bit different than ours. They're shaped a little bit different, but um, it's obvious what they are. And nobody would confuse uh, an electrical outlet um, in Norway for something other than what it was. So these, the more we focus on things very proximate to energy access, the more similar they are across societies. Okay. So there's a book called The Bottom Billion. Have you read it by any chance? I've heard of it. I have not read it. Okay. And so he he argues, I'm trying to think of the gentleman. Uh, it's over there somewhere. Yeah. Um, and he argues in the book that what whole, there's a billion people that are kind of in extreme poverty. Um, and there's certain unique factors in this bottom billion that holds them there. And one of them is location. So if you take a country... Um, in sub-Saharan Africa, but it is, it's in the Sahara, like it's dry, it's landlocked, it doesn't have access to ports, it's uniquely positioned where it, it's really hard for that country's economy to grow. Um, so we, as we think through this issue, I would say the first question I have is, is location part of this problem or part of the reason some countries haven't advanced like others? Yeah, I think it, it probably is. Um, I, I think my my Possibly, I mean, obviously, resources vary from from one ecology to another. How easily accessed those resources are varies from one society to another. But my hunch is that it has something to do with political leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, a political leadership that foments tribal conflict. That do, I mean, here's a, here's a situation where our ideo- ideologies and subjectivities might be relevant. Uh, political leadership that's going to foment tribal discord. Uh, it's going to be hard to get people to agree on the necessity of these underlying foundational uh, infrastructures, maintaining them, uh, building upon them, uh, having adequate schooling for kids so that they can learn how to. The more an area has has vicious tribal conflict, uh, vicious um, uh, kind of balkanization of ethnic populations, uh, it's it's going to be harder to get on the same page about what matters the most. 
you're just going to be at this high level of like you have the wrong religion or, or you know, you have the wrong politics and, and you can't get on the same page to realize that, no, 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 what really matters is that we cooperate with regard to energy extraction, processing and distribution. So so I'm inclined to think that, yes, of course, resources vary from one location to another. That's going to be important. But um, ultimately, you know, humans are very, you know, to keep using this word resourceful, they're very intelligent creatures. Um, and it, it makes me think that, you know, to the degree that you have a society that is non-democratic, that is very parochial, um, motivated to inflame tribal loyalties instead of subdue them, uh, you're going to have a hell of a time agreeing on anything. And what matters most to have agreement on is, is building, maintaining, and increasing the efficiency of your local infrastructure. Okay, so you touched on religion and morals there. It would seem... If you're saying that we need to agree that this is the most important thing, um, that is a morality argument because you're saying that for the betterment of human society or the betterment of you or someone, this is so that's a, you're making a moral argument there, but yet you seem to separate that morality is not as important a part of the equation. Why is that? Um, because I, I can make this argument independent. I, I'm actually don't think I'm making a moral argument here. Uh, I don't. OK, as an analyst, as a scientist. Not as Kevin. As Kevin, yes, I want people to be happy and I want, I want the world to get better, yada, yada. As, as a kind of just an analyst, um, whatever, you know, let's say human society blows up tomorrow. Either energy access, uh, processing and distribution becomes more efficient or the society will not increase in complexity, period. Hmm. Or the economy will not grow at the same rate, period. Mm-hmm. I don't care if that's a good thing. I don't care if that's a bad thing as an analyst. Okay. Kevin. Yeah, so, so, yeah, so, so, so that's just saying you're saying essentially two plus two equals four, whether that's good or bad. That's that's the first one. Okay. So now, but then, but then you, but to, to get people to agree that that is a good thing, that's the moral argument there. It is, but um, it is, it is, I, I suppose it is. Uh, or it's, yeah, I mean, I guess you can make a moral argument that it would be ethical to focus on our shared infrastructure so that we can live longer, happier, healthier, more productive lives. Um, but it's also just a brute fact. I mean, you know, if, if your central nervous system was not as efficient as it was, if your heart wasn't pumping blood, I mean, all the body is just an infrastructural system. It's just tubes and pumps and pipes and filters. I mean, that's all your body is, you know, either that is efficient enough to keep you roaming your landscape for food and water and so on and, and reproducing, or it's not, and you will die. Um, we we can certainly moralize that. And I think with the case of humans, we ought to. But it's also just a brute fact of reality that infrastructural systems, regardless of whether we're talking about a society, or we're talking about a human body, either it's efficient enough to um, uh, produce, process and distribute the energy that it has access to, or it's not. And if it's not, it won't grow and it won't survive and it won't be able to adapt. Yeah. Yeah. So let me, let me push on this for a second here. Um Okay, so two plus two equals four. Uh, in this case, you're saying access to energy, energy infrastructure makes us to live longer, healthier a society. Um, we can advance. And then someone might say, well, well, there, there's too many people. Or doing this is going to harm irreparable damage to the earth. Um, or, you know, why would we, you mentioned capitalism, why would we help, help the capitalists more? Why? So there are things that you can see that some people might say that, no, 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 no. I hear what you're saying. That, that's true. But also, or that, that that there's only a certain type of energy. So um, uh, we'll pick on solar for a second. Solar is the only way to accomplish this. And so by using solar, you're going to cut out some things, but that's actually, so you get into these questions of, of ethics and morals that seem to be tied to this issue. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, so there's a there's a there's a thing that you brought up that I think is really interesting. There's some there's something else I don't understand that's that's almost spooky, but it has to do with systems seeking equilibrium. So there's and this is just has to do with like um, entropy and 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 just a a collection of entities that's um, that's emergent trying to maintain a, a a balance. And this you can see this just in any part of the natural world. This is also happening in human societies, and it's spooky how it works. So for, I'll just give you an example. So it seems that the, the more energy capture and energy a society has, so the greater the access to out, uh, calories. This could be food calories. It could be uh, electricity. However we want to measure access to energy. As societies are able to access more and more energy, parents start to invest more and more in their children. Um, uh more in schooling, more in direction and mentoring, yeah, but have fewer of them. So what's really crazy about this is, and, and nobody's organizing this. Nobody's saying, well, it's not more. Well, they are saying it's moral to have kids or it's not moral to have kids. Mm-hmm. It almost doesn't matter what our little human thoughts about morality are. When systems increase their energy capture from the environment, in other words, as infrastructure engineering principles associated with infrastructure become selected for greater and greater efficiency over time. And it's not a linear process, but as that happens, uh, parents shift their parental strategies. They start having fewer children and they start investing more in them. So, so it almost solves our, our other problems associated with say population or demand on the environment. So I, I'm, I'm not sure how this is really happening. It, it has, it's a complex process having to do with emergence and equilibrium. Um, and, and this seems to be built into the natural world. But it's 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 really fascinating how this is happening. So so part of me says, you know, I almost don't need to care about the morality of what's going on, uh, you know, as because we're trying to live long because insofar as humans want to live a long time and be healthy and safe and productive, um, they will be motivated to improve the quality of their infrastructure. Um, they're going to make a lot of mistakes and they're going to make a lot of errors and they're going to take one step forward, two steps back, and all of that. But but as they do that. Um, so something like civil rights, something like a curb on on high populations, these were inevitable. Something like the Declaration of Human Rights was inevitable. Something like getting rid of slavery. And I know slavery exists all around the world. This is another thing students don't learn in college, right. that slavery is just what America did. Now, slavery is all around the world. I'm aware of that. But 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 to the degree that our, our infrastructure becomes more efficient, human you know, relying completely on human labor, human slave labor is going to be less and less efficient compared to the machines that we're able to build. So, so there's a weird trajectory here that we humans and our puny little brains go, ah, morality is improving, but no, that's not, yeah, sure. We could, that's what it looks like to us. But what's really happening is the system is becoming more and more efficient and seeking greater and greater, um, let's say, um, uh, uh, better and better, integrated kinds of of system equilibriums and we call these things moral but um it's happening independent of what we say or what we do and it's being driven by this underlying desire to increase our energy efficiency and it's just having what we call moral consequences now to deal with your solar panel thing you know i have i'm sure there are many 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 ways to increase our energy efficiency that we just haven't even thought of and so humans being limited, you know, we hit on one solar panels. And then because that's the one we hit on, for example, we moralize the hell out of it and we create our little tribes and we start screaming at each other, you know, but, but, you know, I, I think that's more of a human weakness than really what's underlying here, which is that energy efficiency is increasing, whether it's solar panels or not, 
we are becoming more energy efficient and that's going to have what we call moral consequences. And, and it's spooky how it works. Well, so we'll touch on the energy thing for just a, just a tidbit there. A few things. One, I was in China in um, 2019, November, 2019. Um, and so I was there and I was meeting with someone, a bunch of people, but one guy in particular who had been in Scotland, I think, and he came back and he, he mentioned seeing the sun in Beijing. You could see it now when he left five years before you never saw it. You know, you, I mean, you've seen pictures, you can, but you know, actually see it. Um, the reason you can see it is because China's GDP has gone up. And as your wealth increases, you say, Hey, 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 that trash, it's got to go. That, 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 that terrible water you made us drink. We no longer will take that. And so giving people access to wealth um, allows them to push back on um, atrocities, if you will, or, or environmental atrocities, whatever you want to phrase it, in ways when they're impoverished, they just can't because they're trying to make it day to day. And so it's it, 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 it's a dynamic that people kind of miss. And so when you say, well, um, you know, you want to increase the, the energy output or the energy inf- infrastructure uh, in Africa or wherever, um, and people say, well, we don't give access to oil and gas. It's like, well, actually, first off, we can talk about the, how, how that's not possible, but if it was possible, um, there's a sense in which as their economy grows, they're going to have the same reaction, which is we're no longer going to take this. We don't want this anymore. This is no longer acceptable. And it's not, it's not, it's not a judgment of where they're at now versus where they're going to be. It's just, it's just more of a fact to your point. Like as societies get wealthier, they view things differently. Just like um, someone today who's living under a bridge, who's homeless would eat things or drink things probably that you and I would be like, "Mm, no, we're going to pass on that. If that dude, became a millionaire, he probably wouldn't eat or drink the same type of food. And that's not a judgment uh, trying to be disparaging. It's just more practical reality of how things are. And I think a lot of humans don't stop and think about that. That's the first thing. The second thing I would say is that most people don't understand energy at all and realize that as societies become more energy wealthy or more wealthy, they need more oil and gas in general. And so you just can't, just from the plastics and stuff, you just can't, um, you can't where we're at today or in the next hundred years. It's just not actually feasible to get off oil and gas. There, there, there's, there, we can spend another hour on that. It's just not, it's just not realistic. So if you want to transition to solar or whatever, that's fine. I'm with you 300 years from now, maybe we're using some kind of uh, nuclear fission or whatever. Great. Let's do it. I'm not opposed to it, but it's just, there's just practical realities that people don't understand that the resources that we have and we use now, we're not using them because we're just flipping. It's because we, we like everything in this room that me and you can see comes from oil and gas. And so no solar panel made in any of this stuff. And so if you, if you want to live in these standards, you have to use those resources or you do got to go back down um, on the standard of living chart. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Marshall McLuhan, who's a media scholar, he made this fantastic insight where he says he called it media, but I take out media. I put in infrastructure. Infrastructure is an extension of our central nervous system. So you and I are able to communicate across human space. I mean, I, I guess I could have driven down to where you are, but the <laughs> fact that we can do this like this, that's superhuman. That, that, that's, yeah. that's, almost, that's incredible. Um, yeah, the, the internet, you know, just, uh, you know, the, so infrastructure is an, an extension of our central nervous system. As a result, it confers a, an opportunity for self-actualization, uh, opportunities to uh, create wealth, uh, opportunities to learn, opportunities to be creative that uh, we didn't have when infrastructure was less efficient um, or less sophisticated. And so the value of human life grows as a result. Outlook on the value of human life changes. Uh, this is an, We can get all moralistic about this if we want, but I'm inclined to see this as a natural phenomenon. 
Wait. And there's one thing that that I'm curious, like you think about Khan Academy, something like that. It's on the internet. It's free. You can go learn basically, I don't know, K through college now, maybe. Think it's hard to measure the impact. That's just one of all of that stuff as well, and how that will progress societies who, again, in the 1950s, didn't have anything remotely like that. But now, if you're a poor kid and you get access to internet, which is more doable in some spots than others, but you can get access to internet, you can actually get a good free education online without ever leaving your area and grow up and then have the ability to. Um, move to a, a better job, a better, better area or whatever. And so there are things in society that, that makes it hard for us to project the the impact of them, you know, 50, 20, 20, 50, 100 years from now. And war is disappearing as a result. It's disappearing. If you look at the number of men who die in war in tribal societies or in agricultural societies or archaeological uh, data, um, it, war is just disappearing in human societies. And a big reason why that is, is because that kid who takes those Khan Academy courses uh, it can now generate more wealth. He can do more things. He can work more productively. Uh, he's more intelligent than he would have been if he wasn't able to access those kinds of things. And so now shipping that kid off to war, uh, you're losing, a, I mean, it's always horrible for people to die in war and you're always losing human capital. But but the more we can self-actualize with our various technologies, the more we can learn, the more we can create, the more we can produce, the more valuable, it, literally per person, we are to that economy. And so governments are going to be hesitant about going off to war. It's not just wasteful of human life. It's wasteful of uh, potential future contributions to the economy. Um, so I think it's, you know, this is another one of those spooky things that war is, it's never going to go away entirely. And yes, we have nukes and it can all end in in a, in a split second. I understand that. But but the tendency for countries to go to war now and for for um, males as a proportion of the population to be dying in wars is is vastly smaller. And S- Steve Pinker, to throw another nod to him, is, has done great work on demonstrating how this is the case. Funny enough, I actually sent uh, Mr. Pinker an invite to the podcast today. So hopefully, hopefully he'll come on. Um, so I want to spend just the next few minutes on this, the, the, the concept of epistemology, you know, how we know what we know, basically. And so help me understand, because this is something that, um, you know, I have a high school degree, so I am, I am, the, I'm the podcast idiot here. You, you guys are the experts. But, but I would say that the, college, college teaches a lot of bullshit. So. <laughs> but, but one of the things that 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 I've, as I've interviewed people, talked to people, read stuff, is we are very bad at hum as humans at understanding what we actually know versus what we think we know. Now, this could be as simple as uh, your kid comes home from school and your kid says, "Billy hit me today in the arm," and you immediately assume. Billy hit your son or daughter in the arm because you were told that you don't actually know that you know that they said that there's a big difference there. So as you're studying societies and and trying to go through writing and researching, how do you balance this concept of what you know versus what you're theorizing uh, and trying to project? Because obviously you can't know everything. And so you have to think through these things and, and make educated guesses. So how do you balance that issue? Oh, well, okay. So the way I do it is I seek out people who disagree with what I'm saying and I read what they're writing. Mm-hmm. And most of the time I think they're full of shit, and <laughs> I, but I would, right. That's yeah, how the sure. brain works. But, but I do my very best to expose myself to people who, who vehemently disagree with me. And I, and I do maintain an open mind and, and I've, I've learned to enjoy it. I've learned to more enjoy the challenge than the validation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, it's just, it's more about the fun now than the ego, I guess you could say. It's it's more fun to be challenged, uh, as long right. as it's not hostile, you know, than right. just to have your ego stroked, which is, feels good, but it's not as fun. Um, so there's that. The, the other thing I think about is like, I'm just one guy, 
And it almost doesn't matter if I get it right. What matters is that I'm trying and, and earnestly and, and, that I'm, and that I'm open to being wrong. I mean, that's all that matters. I mean, I, I'm not one of these people who believes in the great men theory of history. I mean, Einstein was a bright guy, but I, I, we would have had someone else who figured out what he figured out. Martin Luther King was a, I'm sure he was a moral guy, even though he wasn't the best husband, it seems. But uh, he was a good guy, but we would have had someone else that made roughly his arguments. So um, this is same for all the great people of history. So I just don't get too worried about it. We, we about that stuff. I, I just try to do my best and expose myself to different ideas. I think it is that simple. If you want to get into the morality question, which you mentioned, we, we can talk about that uh, because I do have a, an idea about what morality is. Yeah. You want to get into that? That's good. We've got about 15 minutes. So or I've got, I've got all day, but we're scheduled for 15 minutes. So we're good. All right. Uh, I've given this thing a lot of thought too. I think morality has just two components. Um uh, and I'm not talking about what is right or wrong, and I'm not claiming I'm a particularly moral person. I don't think I am. I just mean, like, how does it work? And I think morality works according to two broad mechanisms. There's yeah. something called perceptual overlap, which is the degree to which, and I, none of this is unique to me. I'm just kind of trying to codify it and put it in one place. Um, one is perceptual overlap, which is the degree to which I can see myself in you and you can see yourself in me. Mm-hmm. So if I were to learn, Ryan, that you know, if let's say I have a kid and you have a kid and, and, you know, they're both, they both love math and they love playing soccer. You know, the more I'm able to learn about you, the, the more similar you are to me, the more empathic regard I'm going to have for you. And this derives from a very ancient evolutionary desire to um, keep ourselves alive and to focus on ourselves. So the more you are like me, um, the less effort my brain puts into distinguishing between us. And so what's going to hurt you is probably going to hurt me. Mm-hmm. Uh, political policy that's not good for you is probably not going to be good for me. Right. Um, and, and unfortunately, as societies have gotten larger, uh, we've become more distant from one another. Um, it's not just our friends and our family in our small little town that we hang out with. It's all kinds of different people we interact with that we might not be similar to. Um, so there's been a kind of perceptual partitioning across cultural evolution that's been a problem for morality. And the other, to your earlier point, aspect of morality is accuracy. Um, I think that we develop all kinds of inaccurate beliefs about uh, people that are distant from us, that look different from us, that believe different from us. And oftentimes we're just very inaccurate about it. So Michael Shermer makes this case with witches and the the witch craze. Um, Of course, people still do burn witches in the world. I have to say that we assume that it it stopped happening just because we stopped doing it in the West, but it still does happen around the world. Um, But witches were, it was just a empirically factually inaccurate belief that witches were animated by dark spirits. That was just factually inaccurate. And if, if we could somehow go back to the Salem witch trials, sit people down, walk them through how the brain works, walk them through how they might have very harsh moral judgments against women who were speaking out against certain forms of oppression or whatnot, or maybe these women were hallucinating and they were schizophrenic, and we were to walk these guys through this process, um, it's possible that we would have curbed their desire to burn these people. We would have curbed their desire to act so cruelly and so hostile to them. Same with the belief that slaves are subhuman. I mean, these are just factually inaccurate. And it's, it's interesting that, you know, how much of our um, cruelty and our more immoral impulses are rooted in just factual inaccuracy. And you can see this today in partisan debates. You know, Democrats believe that Republicans are just morally defunct. Um, that they just have a, a part of their brain that's missing, that they're just incapable of empathy. And Republicans believe the same about Democrats. 
some of them, the, the extreme partisans. And that's just factually not correct. It's just that they're looking at issues in different ways and they're weighting different values and so on, but they're not morally defunct and they're not motivated to hurt people. And so, so, so much of our immorality, what we call immorality is just factual inaccuracy. So I think it's these two things. It's, it's being accurate about people who appear different from us or who believe different from us. Mm-hmm. And it's this perceptual overlap. It's this, it's this ability to see idiosyncratic aspects of myself in you and vice versa. I think those that that is what morality is. That's how it works. Now, I, I'm not saying I'm an, a moral person for thinking this. I, I, I'm not making any claim on morality. I just I just think that's how morality operates. So first off, was there ever witches burned in the U.S.? What was that? Were there ever witches burned at the stake in the U.S.? Yeah, I believe so. Um, I'm almost positive there's not. I will bet. Friend. I will. I will bet you a friendly lunch on that one. Good, good. Yeah, you may be right. So I think that's one of the misconceptions, though, is that the, that we burn witches at the stake. Um, and um, I don't think there's any evidence of it. The last time I've looked at it, they said, well, maybe it would have happened in this part, which wasn't colonized. It was like the, under Spanish rule at the time. It's like, but, but it wasn't actually in the colonies. But to my knowledge, we never actually burned witches at the stake in the U.S. But happy to be corrected. Uh, I'll put a friendly lunch on it. I'll drive up the Ditton. Okay. okay, sounds good. Yeah, I would like to know that. I thought in New England. Yeah, I, I, see, I think, I think that's one of the the myths that's out there about what was going on at the time. And I'm not trying to make a judgment one, one, one way or another, but it's one of those, um, um, but we'll, we'll, we'll do an offline fact check and we'll, we'll put a lunch on it for that. Okay. As far as your point about closeness, there is something to that though. And this is interesting because on some level we can look at a people and I'll, I'll just pick a country, um, you know, Afghanistan, and we're almost conditioned to not care about them. But there's husbands, wives, daughters, sons, grandbabies, grandparents. Same, the same, the same structures are over there. But we're not. We, we kind of have not been conditioned to care about them. And I have some thoughts on uh, the long. Uh, I know I, I agree with you that war is going down, but the long perpetualness of being in war and how that dehumanizes people um, is a problem. So you you have that. But also, the opposite can be true, where you overly romanticize people who are far away. Right. And, and so you kind of have this duality of not being around people can kind of give you a very skewed reality of, oh, man, let's go to let's go live in Italy. It'd be great. We have pasta every day. We have treats. We have cappuccinos. It's like, well, that's probably not how it is, but it sounds really good. And then you have what you brought up, which was the closeness in the closeness. There is a sense in which, um, you know. The closer that we are aligned. um the more our personalities kind of align, it is so much easier. There's people, people that I know that I just can't read. I'm like, I don't know, like, why? And these people I like, I don't have a problem with. I'm like, I don't know why. Why did they say that? Why did they do that? I don't, I don't understand. And they'll explain it to me. And I'm still like, I don't. How did you think? Like a, like, a, b, c. I, I got it. But I still wouldn't have thought of it. So it's, it's so weird though how that works. And it's, it's very hard. And what's hard is, for me at least, maybe. Um, to then go, yeah, they they legitimately thought that. Because <laughs> like, you go, there's no way you could have thought that. Like, there's no way you could have thought that way. There's times where obviously you go, yeah, I can see that. But there's plenty of times like, no, 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 you didn't think that, did you? Um, I have a 15-year-old son. I have this conversation with him a lot. <laughs> like, you didn't think that way, did you? Um, but but so it, it, it's, there's weird dynamics in society that makes this hard to navigate. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. So like, you know, when we're distant from a from a group, we could also romanticize them. And that's why it's not just the romantic 
pro-sociality, the accuracy also matters because you, you can romanticize a group to the point of dehumanizing them. And I, I see this a lot in my students and colleagues with the noble savage myth. So that a lot of them believe that, you know, indigenous people, Native American people, they lived in peace and harmony and there was no war. And, and really what they're trying to do is they're trying to elevate this right. group and put it on a pedestal. Yeah. Um, and that's fine. And, you know, I, I guess, you know, and I, but, but really what they're doing is they're dehumanizing them. It, yeah. it looks good, but I think it's immoral because, you know, people, again, this is just my personal opinion is that it's not, it's not really moral to put people on pedestals and because 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 it's based on inaccuracy you know indigenous people were humans just like we are and they were prone to all of the biases and all of the cruelties and so on that that uh, non-indigenous people uh, are prone to so I, I think accuracy really matters it's not just a matter of do i have a positive opinion or a negative opinion of a group mm. you hear it as well about human beings and and if that group that you're uh, deifying or, or putting on a pedestal needs help or needs your assistance, you're not going to know how to help them unless you have an accurate understanding of, of their humanity and of their actual uh, station in life. Yeah. And, and then, yeah. So if you bring that up, I, what, one thing that comes about is it's very hard for us to think about um, you think about this, the, the civil war. Okay. And we immediately want to cast what we think happened there. In, and on some level, okay, that's overarching narrative. I'm fine. That's not the same as saying that we actually understand what someone who never wrote a book was never quoted in a newspaper, had nothing to do with maybe slavery or, uh, you know, had, just that was con- contributed to the army. Like, we don't know what that person thought. And that's, and that's kind of a scary spot because now I like, go, oh, well, you know, or you, I'm not saying anything. I'm saying that when you want to unpeel this, it's not. We can we can do that's why I was talking earlier about the more history books we have because we need more and more of the picture because it's not as simple as there are times where you know one side is clearly right and one side is cl- clearly wrong, but it doesn't mean that the wrong side didn't do anything wrong. Um, and you know, and so, we, but we we kind of want to make this this um, yes or no, like right or wrong, and that, that's just not the way it works. It's kind of muddy, it's kind of murky, and it also takes a lot of work to unpack that, and then. If you say, well, you know, Bob on one, two, three Main Street, you know, he wasn't pro-slavery. Well, how could he have ever fought for the Confederacy? Or this Indian, this Indian in this case, or Native American, where, where, you know, this this person, they were they were a savage. Oh, well, how are you defending? It's like, well, I'm not. I'm just I'm just making a statement of trying to make a statement of fact about this one thing, not the overarching narrative. So we can't separate. We struggle to separate narrative from overarching narrative to individual narrative. Brian, last night when I was working out, I was listening to your podcast. So I'm like, I, you know, what's this guy about? You know, oh boy, and, <laughs> no, no, no. And you kept bringing up this either or fallacy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And right about this. That this might be the with confirmation bias. This might be the most pernicious, annoying tendency of people. And it's so obvious why it exists. It simplifies the world. It's a yeah. dichotomous, you know, way of things. Uh, but it's a disaster for for being accurate about other people and for being uh, nuanced about how the world works. I completely agree with you. Okay. All right. We will link to obviously your book um, in the show notes. Is there anywhere else you want to send people to or push them to social media website? Um, well, you know, we have uh, yeah, I can send you the skeptic research center, Twitter. So um, okay. me and uh, uh colleague of mine, um, partner in life really are, are uh, building the skeptic research center where we're trying to discern people's levels of accuracy about various contentious issues in culture. Um, you know, like, you know, how many, how many Americans support outlawing abortion entirely, mm-hmm. you know, the people going, Oh, there's all these people out there that want to completely outlaw abortion with no exceptions. And it turns out that number is actually 8%. 
Mm. And it's shocking to people to hear that. Like, you know, most people are willing to allow abortion in the case of medical emergency or incest or, you know, uh, these very same positions in our culture are actually rare and we hyper-focus on them. Uh, Part of, part of the reason is this either or thing, you know, either you're on my side or you're a fucking nutcase extremist. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, we're trying to build this research center. I'm going to be starting to get more on social media to start to promote it. Uh, as we go. So I can send you that Twitter handle. It'd be Please. cool to. Yeah. Send me that. And uh, we will check that out and then uh, love to get you back on in the future. And we will, we will resolve whether or not we burn witches at the stake or not. Sounds we good. Will, we will settle that on this podcast. Sounds good, Ryan. It's been a pleasure. I'm Thank happy. You. Thanks for listening today. Really, really appreciate it. If you could drop a five-star review, wherever you may be. We keep getting on great guests, and that's because you keep supporting that show. If you want to know more, go to warroommedia.com.